0: Well, this morning we returned to the book of Exodus and we returned to Mount Sinai where we considered last week Israel's arrival and we considered what was happening at the top of the mountain and what was happening on the bottom of the mountain and then what was going on in the middle of the mountain. And just to review, because we're at the same story just further along, so from chapter 19, To chapter 32 now, Um, uh, Israel has arrived having come out of Egypt uh, grumbling all the day long um, as they make their way one stop after another and eventually uh, getting to Mount Sinai which is the place the Lord said he was going to bring them Uh, and Moses this will be the sign to you that I'm doing this that you know you will worship me here on this mountain and so here they are and uh, and and At this moment, it should come back to Moses and not just to Moses, but to all those to whom he's speaking and leading that, hey, this is a reminder that God's hand has been at work in this the whole time as if they needed a reminder. I mean, they've seen some pretty amazing, amazing things. Um, But nonetheless, they've come there and Israel was at the base of the mountain and God's holy presence uh, condescended to come down atop the mountain that he might meet with his people Israel. Um, And they were instructed, don't you dare touch this mountain. This mountain is now holy ground, like the the land around the burning bush when Moses approached and the Lord said, take off your shoes, this is holy ground. It's holy because God's presence is there and it represents the presence of God. And so, you know, in this case, take your shoes off. In the case of Mount Sinai, don't you dare come up this mountain. Don't you dare touch this mountain. God's presence is off-limits. And we commented on the fact that this is one of the consequences. It's, it's one of the um, uh, overlooked consequences, uncomfortable consequences of the fall. Right? We, we, we like to have warm, fuzzy feelings about God, and to think that one of the themes that runs through the Old Testament is you have no access to God is kind of one of the, one of the unpopular themes of the Old Testament. But it's a really obvious theme. And here it's given to us pretty clearly. I mean, God says, don't you even touch the mountain that I'm on or you will die. In fact, when they kill you, don't you touch them because if you touch them, you'll die. So you have to shoot them with an arrow. That's pretty specific instructions about how to, how to kill somebody. But that's what's given in Exodus 19. And not just them, but even a horse or you know, a, a, a donkey. You know, uh, an oxen touches that mountain, they have to die. It's an uncomfortable reality, but it's the reality that this is what sin has done. This is the consequence of our sin in Adam is that now we have no access in and of ourselves to God. And the story then of the, uh, of the Old Testament, and again, the big fat question mark. I, I, I love to use that image of reading the stories, but there's a big fat question mark hanging over them. Like How? can't be the way it's always going to be, is it? That God, God is redeeming a people to keep them alienated from himself? So how, how are these alienated people ever going to be reconciled? And we thought about that in the Garden of Eden as you know, Adam was put out in the flaming sword, but the animal skins were given as a means by which a hint as to how they might indeed pass back through the flaming sword and have access into God's presence. And we'll think about that as we think about the tabernacle and the sacrifices and so forth that are pointers and hints and shadows of the coming, re- coming reconciliation and how you can get back. Remember, when the, when the temple and the tabernacle are built, again, it's built, but no one can go in it. You can't go in that building. So here we have the mountain. Sort of a, vi- we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this when we talk about the tabernacle. I might need my whiteboard. My specially purchased whiteboard at that time. But the the Mount Sinai is, if you will, a vertical version of the tabernacle. Right? And you'll see the people are not allowed to go up it, just as the people are not allowed to go rushing into the tent that is the tabernacle. But some people were allowed to go part way up. And then only Moses was allowed to go all the way up. Even as in the tabernacle, the priests were allowed to go into the holy place, but only the high priest was allowed to go into the holy of holies and so that is is represented here but sort of on this vertical uh structure so there is lack of access you are not allowed you have no access to the presence of god but you have this hint that there may be some way of access because god does after all tell moses to come up there and he keeps that connection between these two opposing forces of man in his sinfulness and god in his holiness He does give us Moses by which he lets Moses come up and I will speak to Moses and Moses will speak to you and you will speak to Moses and Moses will speak to me. And we'll keep this connection, but at the same time maintain this alienation. Now, the promise and the hope is that the day is coming when that separation will be gone. And we've got to try to tease that out. And again, answer this big fat question mark that's hanging over these Old Testament texts. So down at the bottom, we have... Israel, And there they are. They've gathered at the base of the mountain. And on the top, we have God in all of his holiness, thundering and lightning and so forth. And then in the middle, we have this connecting point, this hope that alienation is not the final word, that exile is not the final word, that enmity is not the final word, but that there's hope of reconciliation. Okay, so we thought about that in Exodus 19. Now let's jump to Exodus 32 as the text was read to us, and let's follow the same three points, as I told you I would last week. And let's just reflect again on the top and the bottom and the middle of the mountain, because now we get a little more detail. Now we're able to look into each of these three a little bit more. In chapter 19, we were introduced, yeah, sure, on the top of the mountain, we did have thunder, and we had lightning, we had earthquake, We had darkness. We had the sound of a trumpet that made everybody close their ears. It was big-time intimidation. And on the bottom of the mountain, we had Israel. But now we get, uh, if you will, a little more picture of the two of them. On top of the mountain is this God, a holy God, that the people have actually, you'll remember, asked Moses, okay, don't ever let that happen again. Please don't let him speak to us, Moses. We We can't bear this. His holiness is more than we can handle. And they're right. They were right about that. The God on top of this mountain is intimidating. And we reflected last week on the fact that this is, again, another challenge. Just as the uncomfortable truth and theme of the Old Testament is you don't actually have access to God by yourself. I mean, another uncomfortable theme is God is really holy and really intimidating really other. Jacob wakes up from his dream at Bethel and he's scared to death. I mean, it's like you encounter God and it's like, I can't believe I escaped. I can't believe I'm I'm still alive. You know, Isaiah encounters him in Isaiah 6 and he falls on his face as if dead. Uzzah makes the mistake Let's not call it a mistake. That's too gracious. Uzzah commits the act of rebellion against God by touching the ark as it is jimmying its way out of the back of a trailer, which it should have been carried on poles by you know the Kohathites. And but they don't. They they throw it on the back of a trailer and and as it's shimmying its way out through all the bumps as it's going down the road. It Uzzah realizes it's gonna fall out of the back of the trailer and he reaches to stop it from falling and the Lord strikes him dead. The sons of Aaron are going to later in the text decide to do something creative in worship and they're gonna offer some strange fire, whatever that is, in the presence of the Lord as something neat, creative, you know, trying to you know uh, bring bring some of themselves into worship. And the Lord strikes them dead and then he says to Aaron, and when you hear about this, you better not shed a tear or I'll strike you dead. I mean this is you know this is the God of the Old Testament as we said, don't make the mistake of saying, well that's just the God of the Old Testament. the God of the Old Testament was really harsh the God of, you know but in the New Testament he's love and he's kindness and he's gentle and he's It's the God of the New Testament that opens up the fiery pit at the end of Revelation and heaves people into it. That slays his enemies in Revelation 19 and then summons the birds to eat their flesh. This is the God of the New Testament. And the God of the Old Testament, by the way, who gets, if you will, the bad rap of being harsh, is the God who has is bearing with these people again and again and again and providing and providing and providing and providing. He's a God of grace and who, by the way, will provide a sacrificial system for them to deal with their own sins and so forth. Now, there's only one God of the Bible and harsh is not the right word. Holy is the right word. He's holy He is a consuming fire. And if you are gasoline and you come into his presence, I hate to break it to you, you are going to combust. Not because the fire is mean, but because the fire is fire. And you are gasoline. And fire consumes gasoline. Holiness consumes sin. Holiness must judge sin. It's not fire being harsh. It's fire being fired. It's what fire does. And God is holy. And he is perfectly righteous. And so there he is, on the top of the mountain, thundering before Israel, and they are intimidated indeed. And we would do well to reflect upon that and feel the intimidation and wonder why, if in fact we haven't been, why have we not been intimidated like this? How, why... Do we have? Have we taken God and and made him a uh, uh, dasa? Have we domesticated God? Do we worship the God bless America God, who nobody's intimidated by? Right? Is that the is that the kind of God that we have now? You know, we've taken God and we've reduced him down to a to a uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call a icon. Yeah, an icon? What do, what do you you know as a sports a mascot? No, sorry, thank you, icon too. You know, but yeah, an icon of the reality. But uh, you know, nobody's intimidated by a picture. But yeah, mascot. You know, he's sort of a, a religious mascot. That again, nobody's intimidated. We have to ask ourselves these honest and sincere questions. Like, oh, do have we encountered the true and holy God? Do we tremble before Him? Well, what's He doing on the top of the mountain? Well, we know we've skipped over a large chunk of text because we're not preaching through Exodus, where we are preaching Christ in the Old Testament. And So we're kind of hop-skipping and jumping through taking texts and training ourselves to read the old testament in such a way that we see Christ and that prepares us for Christ and in such a way that we can interpret the old testament text by taking the lens of Christ and looking back at it to say oh i see what's significant in this text so we've skipped over a lot of text well what has god been doing on the top of the mountain he's speaking he's writing He's giving the law, right? He is giving to Moses the terms of his covenantal relationship with Israel. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. This is how it's going to work, okay? Here's what life is going to look like. Here's what my expectations are. Now, again, let's remember, just as I said in the giving of the law, where the giving of the law comes in the sequence of events. It is not... Here's the terms of agreement. You do this, and then you will be considered my people. Remember how he begins the law in in chapter 20. Hey, Israel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It's not, you shall have no other gods before me, and then I will bring you out with a mighty hand. It's, I brought you out, therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. It's really important. So we have the giving of the terms of the agreement. But the the whole idea of this covenantal relationship, this harsh God on top of the mountain, is already in a context of free grace. They've been brought out freely. They've done nothing to earn it. It's just given to them. So remember that, that the law that we receive, the commandments we receive, are never held out in this kind of way of, you, you accomplish these things, and then I will give you. It's, I've given you, therefore live this out. And if we, don't, if we don't live in accordance with it, it may be a demonstration that we are not of his people, but it's not the doing of this makes us his people. He freely grants us that as a gift. So God is on top of the mountain, thundering and lightning, but condescending to give Moses the law, the terms of the covenantal relationship and that's really what the whole back end of the book of Exodus is, is is expounding on how this relationship should look. Well what's going on in the bottom of the mountain? On the top we have the holy God. What do we have on the bottom of the mountain? Well we already know what we have thus far. We have a bunch of grumblers who have kind of made their way out here being blessed by God again and again and again, but who have just left all these breadcrumbs of complaint and grumbling all along the way as they make their way to Sinai. So we know that. We also know that at this point, they've, they've been compliant, right? They're told not to touch the mountain, so they, they build a fence. It's like, okay, you know, we, we concede. We'll not touch the mountain. In fact, we don't even want to speak to God. We'll just let Moses speak to us. So they're basically compliant. We know that perhaps we can say, we looked at last week, they're a little self-confident, or maybe they were just being They were just speaking in, in, in what were the Expected formalities you know Moses comes And he, get, he says hey listen so here's how it's going to Go down um, God's up you know God's thundering And lightning up there and he Has called me up to meet with him so I'm Going to go meet with him then I'm going to come back and report Back to you and you remember what Israel says Okay well all the Lord says we Will do Now maybe that's just a Okay it's a formality like What else are they going to say you <laughs> know like, all right, fine, bring back his word and we'll think about it. I mean, what are they going to say? So they say, fine, Moses. Whatever he says, tell him we're in. We'll do whatever you bring back. So on the one hand, maybe it was just a simple formality, but on the other hand, maybe it was a little overconfident as we witness in our text because it doesn't take very long in the story before they're violating basically everything that God had said to Moses uh, in the in the in the uh, establishing of this ridiculous golden calf. So now, at the bottom of the mountain in chapter 19, we see this people who we know we are a little su- suspicious about in terms of their fidelity to the Lord. But now, in chapter 32, we really start to, the picture comes into focus. Because Moses has now been up there, Moses is up with the Lord for 40 days, and down below, the people are getting restless and they're dissatisfied with the situation as it is. We, you know what, we understood it at the beginning, God's holy, we're not, he's fire, we're gasoline, okay, we get that, but enough now. Enough. We don't like this situation. We don't like this idea that our God is a God who thunders atop the mountain and who we can't even, you know, we're scared to look at, we have to cover our ears when he speaks. It wasn't this way back in Egypt. In Egypt, they related to their gods. They were really comfortable around their gods. Heck, they had a whole bunch of them. And they were very comfortable around their gods. They they didn't have to have one guy who was allowed to go speak to them, and then that's it. And so here, they, they show real dissatisfaction about this. And they say to Aaron, we're tired of this. We don't like this whole arrangement. And then they say this, as for this Moses... This Joker, we don't even know what's become of him. He just, he's up there on the mountain doing his thing, man. As for this Moses, this Moses? You mean the guy that the Lord used to confront Pharaoh 10 times? The guy that the Lord used to split the Red Sea? The guy that led you through the Red Sea? The guy who again and again uh, uh, was used by the Lord to provide for you bread and water? The guy who the whole victory against the Amalekites depended upon. If his arms were lifted, you win. If his arms come down, you lose. That Moses you're talking about? The, the, The man that God has used to bring you out? As for this Moses... It's just spoken with such disregard. As for this Moses guy, we don't even know what's become of him. So they turn to Aaron and they say, make us gods. Make us gods that we can relate to. Make us gods that don't intimidate us. Make us gods that we can be comfortable around, right? They don't want God's intimidating presence and they don't want his exclusive presence that only Moses can go up there. That's ridiculous. So they ask Aaron to make them gods. Now, Aaron, we know he caves here big time and he gets exposed when Moses comes down. It looks so stupid. You know, it's one of those things that when you're down there, you get caught up in the sin of your neighbors and. After a while, you kind of convince yourself, like, maybe it's not that bad of an idea. Like, you become so deluded. This is being conformed to the pattern of the world, right? Is that you become so deluded that you begin to justify it, and you think, and all of a sudden you're coming up with these ways, and the people are grumbling, you're trying to keep them calm anyway, and you think, well, it wouldn't be that bad of an idea. I mean, if we just make them... Now, they're saying, make us gods, but notice Aaron doesn't go all the way. He doesn't go, okay, here's a, bu- here's a bunch of gods for you. They ask for gods, plural. But when he makes the golden calf, he goes, here's your god. Now, Aaron is not saying, oh, let's make up another God. He's saying, okay, here's an image of God. This is the God that led you out of Egypt, okay? So he's, he's not giving credit to something that did. He's trying to say, okay, let's make God relatable. He's trying to play the in-between, like, all right, maybe we can do this and, and make you comfortable and give you something to look at, and, and, and we can't be up there, but let's make a little icon here and give ourselves a picture to be comfortable around. They want gods. They're, they're way out there. And Aaron's trying to, like, play both sides. And so he crafts this God, this picture of God, this icon, if you will, and lays it there for the people. <clears throat> they want to encounter God. They want a God they can relate to, a God they can be comfortable with. And we know this because what happens when Aaron places this God and he goes, Hero Israel, is your God, the one that brought you out of Egypt? What do they do? It says they sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. Isn't that what we want? Don't we want a God that we can just sit and party with? That we can rise up and play and we can all be happy? We're so comfortable. This God, this is not intimidating. This golden calf is not intimidating us. We're very comfortable in his presence. They want a God like the other nations. They want a God that they can be comfortable around, that they can easily appease. So that's what's happening on the bottom of the mountain israel's sin is now exposed very quickly in the process actually in this way we ought to consider ourselves frankly in my opinion what it looks like to do this in our days again these are cartoonish stories in some sense real historical stories but they're caricatures right what does it look like for us to do this I mean, I just think in many ways in our culture, especially with this sexuality and gender stuff that's going on in many of our churches. I mean, the Methodist Church is splitting over this, right? Because the Methodist Church held the ground, held their ground, and said, okay, no, we're not going to budge on the issue of gay marriage and the ordination of homosexuals, right? That we're going to continue to hold the traditional biblical position that homosexuality is a sin, though broken people struggle with it and, and so forth. We all acknowledge that. But we're going to hold the biblical view of, of marriage. We're going to hold the biblical view of, of sin and so forth. And a, a large chunk of the Methodist church said, no, we reject that. We reject that. We want an affirming God. Right? We want an affirming God. We, we, we believe in a God who does not judge people like that. We're not going to, we're not going to be judgmental. We have to be very careful of this because this is very seductive in our culture. Very easy to go along with the tide of our culture and say, yeah, you know, again, we want a God like the other nations would have. We want a God like all the rest of our secular American neighbors. But I'm sorry, that this is not the God of the Bible. This is not the teaching of the Bible. And it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's uncomfortable. It's hard dealing with sin and, and calling things out as sinful. Forget homosexuality and gender disorders. I mean, there's a, a number of other things that we would call sin. And I don't care what thing it is. It's uncomfortable. It's awful, right? We, don't, we, we, we hate having to wrestle with sin and call sin out. But it's a reality. This is the God that we worship. is a God who is holy and who calls things sinful and calls us to repent. And well, we have to be careful. It's easy down here on the mountain to get tired of a God that would hold us accountable for our sin. Okay, so back to the top of the mountain then. In this case, we get a little back and forth. Because up on top of the mountain, God is giving the law. We know that. At the bottom of the mountain now, the people are rising up to play because they finally found a God they can be comfortable with. Back on top of the mountain now, God is fuming. God rises up, and he stops the conversation with Moses, and he says, get out. Now, Moses is the one link here between Israel and God, and now God is kicking him out. Get out. Go away from me. And then he says, the people you brought out of Egypt, he throws it back on Moses' shoulders, the people you brought up out of Egypt... Have rebelled. They're down there worshiping another god. They're building a calf and saying, Oh, this is the one that brought you out of Egypt. Get out of here that my wrath may burn and I'm going to consume them all. And then he says, But I'll make of you a great nation. Now, I mean, this would be fair. And it would still keep his covenant because Moses is a child of Abraham. So he could still keep his word to Abraham that Abraham's descendants would enter the land by just starting over with Moses get out of here, I'm going to consume them all in my wrath. Now, meanwhile, Israel's down there, they're playing. playing. You know, they're, they're dancing, they're eating, they got the music going, they're running around, they're happy as larks. Not knowing right now what is happening on top of that mountain that God Almighty is saying, I am going to consume every one of them in my wrath. Get out of here, Moses. They have no idea on the bottom of the mountain. Just playing and happy and everything's good. All is well. Which brings us then to the focus of the text, and that is what's happening in the middle of the mountain. What's happening in between the fire and the gasoline, the happy, clappy gasoline down there, and the fire that's about to fall on them and consume them all, in between there is this fellow Moses. This guy Moses. And there he is, completely dismissed by the people. But what's he doing? Moses is actually pleading their case. Little do they know they're all about to be consumed, were it not, for the fact that Moses has the audacity to step in and say, can we talk about this? And then say to God, actually, Lord, they're your people that you brought out of Egypt. And I'm asking you, turn turn your fierce anger from them. Why would you give the Egyptians the chance to mock you? Why would you give the Egyptians the chance to say you brought them out there with evil intentions to just consume them in the wilderness? I beg you, turn your wrath from them. And plus, not only that, You've made promises to these people. You have said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you're going to send their descendants back to this land. And that just, it it, it seems to go against the grain that you would just consume them all in one fell swoop out here in the wilderness. It doesn't make sense. Does that sound like your prayer life? This is Moses' prayer, right? It's just that he's doing it face to face. But this is a man who's wrestling with God. This is a man who's engaging God as a priest don't forget you're a kingdom of priests but Moses goes to the Lord and he is wrestling with God and he's saying please no and then shock of all shocks it says and so God said okay I won't Moses asked the Lord and the Lord out of love for Moses says okay I won't do it and he relents and he turns That is this mediatorial work, this man in the middle, (coughs) this fellow Moses, as the priest of the people, persuades God or asks God, and because of God's love for Moses, he answers Moses' petition and does not consume them all in the wilderness. And the people have no idea; they have no idea. It's like it's like the, the the little hobbits. Right Back in the friar. What's become of that fellow Frodo? Off on another journey. What the heck is his deal? Without ever knowing that little Frodo is standing at the fiery pits of Mordor delivering all of Middle Earth. And that if Frodo doesn't do what he's got to do, they're all going to perish. The happy little hobbits dancing and having their fireworks and the little parties and their ales, tending to their gardens, have no idea the destruction that's about to rain down on them were it not for this little Frodo, this fellow Frodo, who makes his way to the fiery doors of Mordor. And Israel down below has no idea what their hidden hero is doing on that mountain, up there by himself. He's so exclusive. Such privilege. Only Moses can go. No idea what he's dealing with up there in the presence of God's wrath, pleading the case of Israel. Now, to be sure, Moses comes down, he smashes the thing, he unleashes discipline, violent discipline, upon many of the people in the camp. He embarrasses Aaron. What the heck are you thinking? Aaron comes up with this stupid stupid idea that he threw it in the fire and out came this animal, this calf. And then Moses says to the people, you guys, you have no idea what's about to fall on you. Now, I'm going to go back up there and see what I can do. But I can't make no promises. Moses goes back up the mountain and right at the very end of the text tries to make atonement for the people. Again, they have no idea what he's doing up there. This fellow Moses, do you know what he's doing up there? He actually goes back up there And says to them, look, I get it. God, I'm not asking you to dismiss your holiness. I get it. They deserve to die. But if you would, take me. Take me. If wrath has to be poured out, pour it out on me and save them. They have no idea what's going on in the middle of that mountain They have no idea who's standing in between and what this fellow Moses is doing for them as he asks to take the judgment. Let me perish and let the people go to the promised land. But that's what he's doing. Now, at the end of the day, we know. The Lord says no to Moses. No, I'm not doing that. No, they'll die. Not because this time the Lord doesn't heed Moses, but because Moses asks for more than he can actually get. Right At the end of the day, this text is an amazing text because it really does tell us about the hidden hero. The hidden hero of this story is Moses. They, the people down there can't see what's going on. They don't know how desperately they need him. But he's their champion. But of course, this text leaves us unsatisfied. Because we know at the end of the day, Moses is insufficient. What a hero. What what an awesome priest. What an awesome leader. To say, I'll perish so that my people, these rotten people, can get to where the Lord has promised them to go. But it leaves us with a bad taste because he can't do it. Awesome, but insufficient. Moses can't preserve them. He's an insufficient substitute. I mean, on the big picture, he deserves to die too. He's a picture of a mediator, but he can't be the mediator. He himself deserves to die. It's not a fair trade. God can't pour out his wrath on Moses and go, okay, I'm satisfied. My justice smiles and asks no more. Can't do that because in the big scale of things, Moses himself is a sinner. So he's wonderful, but he's insufficient. But what this story does for us, of course, is it points us forward, or at least it it develops in us an appetite and a longing, a recognition of the fact that we need a Moses who is sufficient. That's what the story is telling us. This is the problem with man. You got a bunch of idolaters at the bottom. You got a holy God on the top who's going to come and consume them unless somebody steps in. And yeah, it's Frodo. It's this fellow Jesus. Just as I came here, I was listening to a sermon on John nine, where Jesus heals the blind man with the um, you know the spit, and, and the you know the Pharisees and so forth are are, are basically you know um, trying the blind man about who did this, and and they said, well, they know who they know it's Jesus who's claiming to have done this, but they're trying to get out from from this blind man who who this guy is who who Jesus is and they use very similar language go read it they use very similar we don't know who this fellow is we don't even know where he's come from like we don't know his background like he's just, you know with his oh a virgin birth this fellow Jesus yeah he's not that you look at him he's not that impressive the people grumble about him but it's this guy who is behind the scenes doing the unimaginable thing. I mean, even when you look at the cross, because at the cross, here's the moment, right? Here is the Exodus 32 moment. God, in his fiery wrath, is pouring down the fire of his judgment upon his people, but there is Jesus on the cross in between, absorbing the full weight and fire and flame of that judgment to spare the people. And again, even for our common secular people, all they can see is a Roman execution. They just see this good teacher who got a raw deal. Like so many others, another act of injustice and a good man goes down, another Martin Luther King Jr. who died for a great cause and you know, died before his time was really up. Who knows what could have happened in the last 40 years of his life if only he had made it. That's all you can see is this fellow Jesus What you can't see on the cross is him on top of Mount Sinai being the atonement and saying to the father, take me, spare them. Even his last words on the cross, father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But how is the father supposed to forgive them? How how does fire ever forgive gasoline? Like, how does it ever do that? There's only one way. Jesus himself says, forgive them, take me. I'll, t- I'll take the combustion, I'll take the fire. And right in plain view, he's the hidden hero. I often tell my students about this when they, we talk about the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It's like, go ahead and watch it if you, if you can. It's, it's hard, it's hard to endure, but just know this. You're not seeing what's going on. You will see a brutal beating and it will move you to tears. It will make you cringe. It will make you appreciate your Savior. But please understand, that can, it does not, cannot give you a glimpse of what is actually going down. I don't care what the Romans did. I don't care what the Jews did. I don't care what Pontius Pilate does. I don't care what they do to him on that cross. You are not seeing what's really happening, though you are. I mean, I don't deny the the fact that it's a Roman cross is very important. but, But there's something else going on on top of that mountain that you are not seeing. And it is he is bearing upon himself the full, unmitigated wrath of God in a way Moses never could. But he is doing. Take me, spare them. And so this text drives us forward. To that one who will resolve the big question mark. Okay, I mean, let's face it. All these people die in the wilderness. They don't make it to the promised land. That's the point that that, uh, the book of Hebrews says. So again, Moses is insufficient, right? He's a picture. He's a shadow of the true Moses who will stand and quench Mount Sinai's flame. The one who, when we trust in him, justice smiles and asks no more. There's no more fire all of a sudden now, the doors of access are thrown open. right? Because of this one in the middle, through him the portals are open and we are able to come back into the garden. Because of him we're able to ascend to the mountain and enter boldly into his throne of grace because this one has borne in himself the fire and the wrath. This is the story that we celebrate. It's interesting that in the next chapter, in chapter 33, Moses will, God will say to Moses, okay, I'm not going to consume them. Fine. I'm not taking you as an atonement. It doesn't work that way. In fact, even here, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you. I'm going to give you everything you wanted, but I'm not going with you. And Moses once again pleads their case, and he says, if you don't go with us, it's not worth going. Then I go. Let's take it all back. Kill us all right here and end this thing. You must go with us. And the Lord says, fine, I'll go with you. Again, demonstrating the fact that it is because of the work of this mediator that you, Israel, are blessed. And then Moses proves himself insufficient again because he says to God, can I see your glory? And God says, no. If you see my glory, you'll die. So I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock, rock of ages, cleft for me. I'll hide you in here and I'll pass by you that you you can kind of bask in the glow, but you can't see me. So the story here, as awesome as it is, leaves us wanting, looking for the one who is able to look upon the Father, the one who is able to truly be in the glory of the Father, the one who truly satisfies all our needs by bearing all of his wrath and all of his judgment, and who finally fully brings us into the promised land. This is what this text points us to, namely Jesus Christ. And I urge you to reflect who it is atop the mountain and who we are at the bottom of the mountain. We're those people. We're no better. But praise be to God that there is one in the middle of the mountain who secures our peace once and for all by bearing in himself the full wrath that we deserve so that we truly have forever peace and access to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the work of our greater Moses who stands in the gap who perfectly represents us bearing our sin and bearing the judgment we deserve, but who also perfectly represents you and your holiness, so that in his very being there is reconciliation between God and man. And Father, he is indeed our hidden hero, the one who does for us what we can't even imagine having done for us, the doing for us what so many of our neighbors never even think of uh, needing being done, And yet there on the cross, he is accomplishing our salvation and securing our peace. Father, help us to put voice to it, to point people to the beauty, to the value, the significance, the worth of our mediator and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.